0: to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You are listening to the NASP podcast. This specialty pharmacy podcast is a collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy and the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The mission of the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy is to improve specialty pharmacy practice by promoting continuing professional education and certification of specialty pharmacists while advocating for public policies that ensure patient access to specialty medications. As the healthcare industry's leading podcast dedicated to the pharmacy profession, the Pharmacy Podcast Network is proud to bring our listeners the NASP Podcast. In collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. Hello,
1: my name is Sheila Arquette, and I'm the President and CEO of the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. I am delighted to welcome a very special guest, Dr. Paige Killian, to this episode of the NASP podcast. Dr. Killian serves as the Chief Medical Officer for Innovalon. In this role, Dr. Killian is responsible for the oversight of the medical directors of the company the clinical content and design of the company's software and analytics, and the clinical training, quality, policies, oversight, and compliance of associated operations. For more than a decade, Dr. Killian has led a team of clinical personnel who bring the latest best practices and evidence-based clinical standards to innovalon's products and services. Dr. Killian is well-known throughout the healthcare community as an expert on the application of data, software, and analytics to the benefit of clinical protocols, care guidelines, real-world healthcare clinical workflow, and regulatory policy guidelines adherence. Most recently, Dr. Killian has been recognized with the Healthcare Business Women's Association 2020 Luminary Award. Prior to joining Enovalon in 2007, Dr. Killian was in clinical practice with Johns Hopkins Community Physicians where she served as medical director with responsibilities including patient care, clinical training of medical students and residents, and clinical oversight of a multi-specialty practice. Dr. Killian graduated summa cum laude from Washington and Lee University and earned her doctorate in medicine from Tufts University School of Medicine. She completed her residency in internal medicine at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Paige, thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I'm
1: excited to be here. So to get started, what can you tell our listeners
0: about Inovalon, its mission and your role? So as you have said, I am chief medical officer at Anovalon. You know, we have a website that says we are a leading provider of cloud-based platforms empowering data-driven healthcare, which sounds fabulous, I think. Um, but I, it's helpful to think about what that really means. And the way that I think about it is, is as follows. There is an overwhelming wealth of data in the healthcare industry, but it's all over the place. It's in claims, it's in electronic medical records, it's in patients' heads, it's in doctors' heads and nurse practitioners' heads and nurses' heads. And you know, uh, believe it or not, even today, it, it's on paper. So Innovalon's analytics and platforms make sense of those data, identifying patterns and essential elements to facilitate critical activities so we can point patients to care they need and doctors to patients who need them. Um, So we can streamline tracking and reporting of risk adjustment and quality data for health plans. So we can help optimize it, help optimize the revenue cycle for practices. And so we can help specialty pharmacies receive all of the information they need in order to provide life and quality of life, sustaining medications to patients with chronic and rare illnesses. So for my specific role, I've been with Novalon now for over 16 years, but I always say that I'm an internist by training and that I remain a PCP at heart. (laughs) I love that. As you contemplate
1: the state of our healthcare system, What keeps you up at night?
0: So, as I said, I've I've spent these, these 16 or so years as a physician executive, but despite that, I think like a primary care physician. So the fact is that even though I don't have actual patients anymore keeping me up at night, I am extremely concerned about what I see as a looming and accelerating crisis in our healthcare system. And that is the fact that people are leaving it. There's a massive exodus of doctors, of nurses, of community pharmacists and other healthcare professionals from their professions. Last year, uh, about a year and a half ago, the AMA, the the American Medical Association surveyed over 20,000 professionals across 124 institutions and found that one in five physicians was planning to leave practice within two years. One in three were planning to reduce hours. Those numbers were attributed to several factors, but interestingly, despite the timings, so about a year and a half ago, the findings did not correlate with geographical COVID burden, which is probably what we would have all thought, oh, well, no wonder people are leaving practice. You know, COVID's. you know, is burning everyone out. The numbers didn't map to COVID burden. The Association of American Medical Colleges, which is the AAMC, predicts a shortage of up to 124,000 physicians by 2034. And there are other bodies that estimate those, that deficit to be even higher. Nurses are leaving too. According to the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, 100,000 nurses have exited the profession over the last two years, and one in five is planning to leave in the next four years. My daughter's a nurse. She says what they're told is one in three is leaving in the next few years. Their their alarm bells are, are ringing all over the place. Whether or not pharmacists are leaving the profession entirely is a little less clear, but there is absolutely a shift away from community pharmacy. It all adds up to reduced access to care, particularly because those who are leaving their roles for other opportunities, even if that's retirement, because you know some of us are, are aging out, but those who are leaving their roles for other opportunities are heavily tilted toward primary care. So, internists, family practitioners, and community pharmacists, they're leaving.
1: I know, I you know, I, I read that all of the time, and I think it's just due to you know, that like, especially, I mean, I, I'm speaking with respect to pharmacists, just, you know, the the crazy pace that they have to maintain and all of the different types of responsibilities that they have, right? Trying to manage that um, all at the same time with, again, a little supportive help, right? Because as as we were talking about earlier, there's just, it's really hard to find, you know, um, employees right now. Absolutely, it is. So how do you think we can reverse
0: this trend? What can we do? Well, I think, we need to recognize what some of the drivers are. And, and, you know, we've, we've commented on, commented on that already, but I would love to give a little uh, flesh on the bone if that's okay. And, you know, like I mentioned, everyone's like, Oh, the pandemic was terrible. The pandemic was terrible. And of course it was, it's tempting to blame the pandemic, but it's really far more complicated than that going back to 2016. And I have to confess that I'm about to quote a study that that has become kind of Um, bread and butter for me in in sounding this alarm. Annals of Internal Medicine published a study in that year indicating that outpatient physicians spend only 27% of their workday on direct patient care and just shy of 50% on administrative tasks, whether they're EMR or paper-based. So, In an environment in which access to care is critically important and even is measured as a quality standard, It's unsustainable. Our very efforts to drive cost containment and our efforts to drive quality are actually playing a role in undermining it. At the end of 2020, if we remember back to that point, it was at the time we thought it was mid-pandemic, but it was still early pandemic (laughs) and and, retrospective scope and all of that, right? Um, Vaccines were just coming online. Medical economics surveyed its readership and found that the leading challenge for the coming year was paperwork. And again, this is mid pandemic. The leading contributor to burnout among those reporting burnout was administrative burden with prior authorizations and quality metric reporting leading the pack. Regarding quality metric reporting, and of course medication adherence is is up in there. um, The perception among many, certainly among physicians is that The burden might not be offset by a significant impact on improving the quality of care delivered. And, you know, so speaking of this burnout, pharmacists, as you've alluded, are not immune, right? So no matter how many vaccines they have administered over the course of the past three years, they're not immune to burnout. Uh, This spring, just a few months ago, the Washington Post published a piece looking at exactly what you were mentioning, the burgeoning stress and workload leading to exhaustion and pharmacy staff shortages. They cited the National State-Based Pharmacy Workplace Study, which was conducted in 2021, and it was conducted across over 6,000 pharmacists across all work. Spaces reported that 75% of pharmacists disagreed with the following statement. Sufficient time is allocated for me to safely perform patient care slash clinical duties. So 75% of pharmacists across all work types disagreed with that statement. That's, it's chilling. It's, it's chilling. So Absolutely. The pandemic slammed pharmacists. But according to Lisa Bernstein, the interim chief of the American Pharmacists Association, as I'm sure you know, Mm -hmm. not much has improved on the burnout front, even though the pandemic has fortunately waned. According to the most recent National Pharmacist Workforce Study, there's a shortage of pharmacists willing to endure the pressurized environment that that we're discussing. Reducing pharmacy hours in response to that is is a strategy that some pharmacists have employed, but it doesn't reduce the amount of work that has to to be done. It reduces the number of hours available to do it. So the vicious cycle continues. And the risk is once again that patient care is jeopardized. So I've gone on and on, and you asked me how to reverse the trend, but I think you know that that that's what the trend is. those are the drivers. So, okay, how do we reverse it? And I guess the um, the glib answer, not that I think it's fair to be glib here, is we have to reduce administrative burden. Um, I would say that as a physician speaking, you know, recognizing that I'm speaking in a pharmacy forum, the obvious opportunities on which I'd like to comment are prior authorizations Mm -hmm. and quality measures, you know, many of which hinge on pharmacy interventions. So if we think back to what I just quoted, those two are the biggest contributors to the administrative burden driving physicians out of practice and their effect on pharmacy is self-evident. You know, I think on the On the prior authorization front, there are fortunately many voices. From my perspective though, I'm not sure that all of the dots are really being connected effectively. I'm not sure that voices are being raised in unison collaboratively and and loudly enough. On the pharmacy side, certainly we have acknowledgement that I don't know if you would consider it traditional or reactive, but the, the usual method for prior authorization, prior authorization is very inefficient, right? And it leads to delays for patients and reduces opportunities for face-to-face engagement between pharmacists and their patients. And that's a dissatisfier for both. Patients want to talk to their pharmacists and pharmacists want to talk to their patients that, you know, that that's one of the, um, engaging, um, self-fulfilling, are fulfilling uh, roles of a pharmacist, right? They want that patient engagement for the most part. So when we have the reactive process, that's diminished. There are things that we're doing um, that largely I think pharmacy has driven to improve that, right? We have the new electronic prior authorization standard. We have real-time benefit comparison tools. And the good news is prospective prior authorizations are increasing. So that's terrific. Definitely good for patients, definitely good for pharmacists, delays are reduced, the back and forth diminishes, and and that's that's fabulous. That's a very good thing. But I'm not sure that it really makes that much of a difference on the physician side. You know, according to the AMA, recognizing that prior authorizations are a health plan cost containment strategy, it's a pretty expensive one, right? So Mm -hmm. It's a process that costs the typical physician practice up to two business days per week, and it costs patients. So sometimes you have devastating delays. Sometimes you have abandoned treatment with hospitalizations, disability, death, all of the horrific outcomes that can come from a lack of quality care being delivered. Um, The AMA has some stark statistics. 94% of physicians report Delays waiting for insurers to authorize necessary treatment. 80% have seen treatment abandonment. And 33% of the physicians surveyed reported that they had seen a serious event. The, um, The prior authorization process is financially expensive too. So obviously resources cost money, but for 2020... There was a, an estimate that the prior authorization process for that year was $767 million of burden to the system, and providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, practices absorbed about 86% of that. In um, There's a paper in June, and I, 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 can you tell I'm passionate on this? <laughs> of course, of course. Um, There was a paper in June where the AMA covered its updated assessment of the prior authorization process and basically said, look, it's expensive, it's overused, it's inefficient, and frankly, it's dangerous. So it has a recovery plan for America's physicians. And in that, related to prior authorization, the AMA advocates reducing total volume of prior authorization increasing transparency of the requirements, and of course, driving automation, get data, get that ever-important data where it needs to be um, as quickly as possible with as as, um, little misinformation as possible. It totally makes sense. I think we can all get on board with that. For treatments that are regularly approved, let's eliminate prior authorizations altogether. Let's eliminate prior authorizations for dose changes. Make the original prior off good for a year. And and let's, for Pete's sake, stop requiring prior authorizations for ongoing care when patients change healthcare coverage. Those steps alone would be wins for everyone, for physicians, for pharmacists, and most importantly, for patients. So that's a compelling story for me, that pharmacists and physicians collaborating through their associations can drive reduction in this administrative burden so that all of us as healthcare professionals can do exactly what we entered the space to do, which is to spend time with patients. And that actually improves the quality of care delivered. It permits counseling on the importance of medication adherence. It permits doctors and pharmacists to explain What to expect when a medication is started, what side effects are possible, what to do if they occur, how long they might last. Should you you let them go and endure? Should you let me know right away? Um, Why is the medication important to take? It allows time to sort out what barriers exist for a patient to take her meds and what can be done to overcome them. And remember that a lot of times the pharmacist is the absolute best in the best position to identify those barriers. Pharmacists are, pharmacists are seeing patients far more often than doctors are. They, they can identify these barriers if they have time for the face-to-face interaction and they can help move toward overcoming them. So that's my that that's how I see what we need to do.
1: Sure. And and like you and I were discussing, you know, in in my former life, I was pharmacy director for a health plan. So would you agree, like, as you were talking, you know, there was, I mean, you and I could probably talk about this for hours, but I think so. I I, I think it's an issue where we need to have all of the stakeholders at the table. So like you talked about transparency and so that there is an understanding, right. Of why currently, why, you know, why the things that are done are done, right? And yeah. then to the point, how could we, um, how could we, you know, get away from the things that are not providing value? And, and when you were talking, I thought back, you know, I started back at my health plan way, way back in the early 2000s. And we had a program where we would gold card physicians from prior authorizations once, you know, their approval rate was, you know, a yes. certain percentage. That was awesome. And then yes. there were some requirements that came in from some different lines of business, right? For, you know, some of our, our um federal programs that said you can't do that right you have to treat everybody the same yep. so it just seems like you know it it's just such a it, it's such a multidisciplinary problem that it requires everybody getting together and understanding. I'll give you another example. We had a physician who you know um, was prescribing some things that you know we thought, well geez, we have other alternatives and you know why isn't he using this So finally we sat down and talked to him he just didn't know right He's like, I don't even know the cost of most of these things. If you give that information to me, I can make a better determination at the time I'm prescribing
0: these medications. Right? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's speaking entirely to the, the, the vision for collaboration, right? If everybody can come to the table, understanding what problems need to be solved, and where can we overcome problems we're creating and trying to solve those over, uh, over there? What, you know, what information needs to be given? What process can be introduced? What automation can be introduced? And also, you know, where can we maybe step back on, on requirements? Uh, you're exactly right. It's It's the collaboration. Right. Absolutely. So, what is your vision for the future? What do you think
1: is possible if we're able to overcome the drivers of burnout, the staffing shortages, the other things that you and I have just discussed? You know about the administrative burden on on all healthcare
0: providers. Yeah, I I am. I am an optimist <laughs> um, at, the, at the end of the day and I am devoted to patient care at the end of the day as I think we all are. So this will be a little bit of a gear shift maybe, but if, if, we, if collaborative advocacy that you know, we're envisioning overcomes the prior authorization burden and volume is reduced and automation is increased, we can spend the time and resources we save working to overcome inequity and working to improve the disparity in healthcare outcomes. The liberated time and resources we're envisioning can be mobilized to improve acquisition of accurate data. Uh, Social determinants of health, huge buzzwords, right? And, And we know they're sexy now, but those of us who've been in patient care have known they were important from the very beginning, right? It's great that all this attention is on them now. Let's harness it. We need the time and resources to do it and to do it well. So for example, the gold standard in acquiring race and ethnicity data is Mm self-identification. We need to understand the patient's self-identity, not what another observer judges based on appearance or the way a name sounds, but self-identification data are tough. They're rarely gathered today. It turns out that a great deal of the race and ethnicity data that do exist are inaccurate. The gathering information on barriers to medical care and to medication adherence is also critical, as we've been touching on. It takes time to do these things. Questioners have to be trained to ask questions that may be perceived as sensitive. And patients may be reluctant to answer questions when they're not sure how the answers are going to be used, right? So we have to invest the time in, in sensitive questioning, in training, in reassuring patients, And once we've invested the time to ask the questions, we need to make sure we're codifying it so we can use it. We can largely do that through things like Z codes, but but they're very underutilized today. We need to codify it, we need to gather the information, we need to codify it, and then we can watch important outcomes like hospitalizations, like ER events, like medication adherence. We can determine how they break down across populations and develop programs and interventions to improve them. We need to know where to focus resources on improvement. It's a huge, challenging subject, but it's a problem we have to solve. It absolutely is. So in an ideal world, from my perspective, and I you know, sometimes live inside my head in an ideal world, we solve prior authorization. We give time back to doctors and to pharmacists and to their teams, actually to spend it with patients. And we use that time to identify and overcome disparities in healthcare outcomes. So that's my vision. And I really appreciate you giving me the time to express it.
1: Absolutely. What do you think about, as as you're talking, it just reminded me of, um, I always had a big focus on patient accountability. Mm -hmm. And and I think that is only possible through, again, education of the patient, time spent with the patient. But it always seemed to, to strike me when I was at the health plan that, you know, I worked on all of the the denials and the appeals for certain, you know, prior authorization requests. And I would talk to to our members and it seemed like I was more invested in their healthcare than they were. Right. And I thought, geez, how do we get you to understand the importance and the value of your health? Right. And and to engage as a partner. Right. Not not to be so passive. How do you feel about that?
0: Well, I think that um, for some people, for many people, unfortunately, the pressures of the of the given moment the today the tomorrow um can outweigh the um perception that if i do this now i'm going to be better in a year or 5 years or 10 years so um it, it it there it's very complicated and there are folks out there who are managing stressors that are almost unimaginable and you know to your point about you know, physicians needing to be educated on the prior authorization um, process and why a particular medication should be used or why it shouldn't because it's so expensive, and what education can do for a physician in that role. I think the same is true for patients, and sometimes the benefit of of taking this medication today or stopping that medication today or stopping this behavior today. Um, isn't inherently obvious to them. And so the education around it, the explanation, the time that goes in to, you know, why we're suggesting you take this, you know, what this will do for you, what not doing it could cost you the time invested in that is well spent because otherwise the day to day pressure um, can certainly overcome taking good care of yourself for the future.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's just through that conversation with, with patients that you do identify those other stressors that you you probably absolutely. wouldn't know about. And then you can connect them to, you know, we had so many resources, you know, at the health plan that, that could help them beyond, you know, medication exactly and, and that type of treatment. And so it's through that, that interaction with patients that you learn of that, that you can connect them to the other care that they need so that they can be compliant and adherent and engaged in their own health care.
0: Precisely.
1: Well, I have to thank you so much, Paige, for chatting with me and sharing this valuable information. Thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure. We would also like to thank Inovalon for being an NASP 2023 Annual Meeting and Expo Diamond Level sponsor. NASP podcast listeners are invited to visit the Inovalon exhibit booth. Booth number 305, September 18th through 21st. You can also schedule a one on one chat to learn more about anovalon specialty and infusion software solutions. As a reminder, NASP corporate members are invited to be my guest on one complimentary podcast per year. For more information on this or other NASP membership benefits and events, please feel free to reach out to info at naspnet.org or visit our website at www.naspnet.org. Until next time, have a great day.